Our message focus today is from Jonah chapter 3. Uh, Pastor Corey's been going through for the last two weeks, Jonah, and I believe chapter 4 is next week. That'll be our fourth one. And there are only four chapters in Jonah, by the way. Jonah chapter 3, starting with verse 1, reads this way. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I, gave you, I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so we will not perish. When God saw what they had done, sorry, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Thank you, Jeff. As Jeff said, this is our third week in the book of Jonah. Oh, thank you so much, Hank. Third week in the book of Jonah, and a series that I have been referring to as the worst missionary, because Jonah gives us pretty much the exact opposite of a good example of what we ought to do as bearers of God's news to the world. But of course, Jonah isn't actually a missionary at all, right? He's a prophet. Uh, Jonah isn't being sent on a mission to share about Jesus, or even to share God's goodness to Nineveh, or even to encourage them to convert. Uh, as a prophet, Jonah's mission is to declare a message from God, specifically a message of judgment. As a prophet, uh, you know, he, but he has kind of a unique role because he's not giving his message to the people of Israel, to the people of his God, but rather a, um, a people that are not his own. In fact, enemies of Israel as well. It's kind of unique in comparison to the other prophets. There are other prophets who speak to other nations. They generally give those messages for the benefit of Israel, though, as a kind of encouragement and occasionally as a comparative warning. So Jonah is unique in that he goes to this other nation. And it's unique that they listen. We'll talk more about that this morning. There's a few important things that I think we can learn from this text, particularly chapter 3 this morning. The first is that God calls us to preach justice and wrath, at least sometimes. At least sometimes, right? Uh, are aware of the good news, bad news conundrum, right? Like, what do you share first if you have good news and bad news? Do you share the good news first or the bad news? What do you all prefer? Does anyone prefer to receive the bad news first? Anyone prefer to receive the good news first? 
almost no hands went up for that one. And interestingly, uh, studies have shown that most people always say we would rather have the bad news first and then maybe kind of be comforted uh, afterwards. But for some reason, people who are delivering the news always seem to want to do the good news first, maybe as a way to kind of soften the blow before uh, the bad news comes. Um, I've always felt it was kind of interesting, though, whenever we share the gospel with other people, whenever we're uh, trying to share faith and there's methods of evangelism, there are quite a few people out, out there who have this tack of trying to convince people that they're sinners before even sharing the good news. They have this, like, walkthrough of the Ten Commandments or walkthrough of, have you broken all these things? And you're a thief and you're a, you're a, um, a murderer, you're an adulterer. So you, obviously you are in need of, uh, of salvation, right? The good news really, though, right, as we have talked about, Brenda gave a whole uh, message on it a couple weeks back. The good news is less about even what is specifically done for us, but it's about who God is and what God has done. The good news has always been, even before Jesus was uh, incarnated, that the one true God is love and body, who's creator and Lord, who's living and active in our world, making covenants upholding justice, displaying mercy and loving kindness to others. And in Jesus, we see God's character on full display. And that proclamation that Jesus is Lord is the gospel, is good news. Because it means that Jesus has conquered the grave and all the powers of sin and death and everything that goes along with that. And yet, that same good news can be bad news to anyone who has allied themselves with the powers of sin and death. Because if Jesus is Lord, is Lord and has conquered all of those things, then it's going to be bad news for the, uh, the conquered. That's the situation for the Ninevites, right? That there's bad news that destruction is coming because of their wickedness, because of sin, because of their violence. But Jonah feels no need to ask them whether they want the good news or bad news first here, right? Because it's kind of just the same news to him. It's, it's news of their destruction, which is good news for him. He wants them to be destroyed. But he never seems to get around to that other part, the hope of repentance. That's the part that he leaves quiet. So, when and how ought we to ever preach a message of judgment as we are sharing the news of God and of Jesus? Well, I think there's actually two Godly reasons why we would, at some point, preach judgment. One is this idea of urging an end to evil behavior. To say, you, these things are bad, God is opposed to them, and we want uh, to see the world made better. You, you need to stop what you're doing. On the flip side of that as well, it's a concern for the other, to spare them from the negative consequences of evil action. The ungodly reason, though, and a reason that a lot of people will preach about judgment or, or um, uh, in condemnation of someone else is really more the uh, enjoying the thought of the other person's suffering, right? That we, uh, we want to see those people lost to their um, uh, the consequences of their action. Um, but when I th- ever threaten consequences to my kids, when I do that, it's, it's generally because um, their behavior is unhealthy. Right? I want to head it off at the pass. I want to uh, head it off before it ever gets to the point of the actual consequences even happening. And that's important, right? Because this warning is coming in the context of relationship. The context of I desire for my kids to flourish. I desire for them to also be the kind of people and grow into the kind of people that will be about the flourishing of others as well. 
That's an important context. And I don't always do it perfectly either. And, uh, you know, Lydia and I, as parents, we're broken. We're all broken. And so sometimes we are just impatient and we want uh, things to happen in our own way and what's comfortable for us. And so we don't always do it uh, with the best motives or intentions in mind. But God is perfect, right? So I think that that context is important of the relationship here. And that's why the stereotype that we often have of the, the bullhorn preacher, the someone who's on the, the sidewalk, who's uh, shouting out judgment, that it is feels intuitively so wrong to us is because it's absent that relationship, right? So often the people who they are speaking to don't even have the relationship with God that would give any sort of uh, context to the message. And they definitely don't know this person on the sidewalk. And so why would they even trust this person at all? Of course, they would be rejected. But it is an error, I think, to say that judgment against sin should never be a part of our message. Giving the gospel in truth must occasionally involve um, God's message of grief against sin, which means we must be able to communicate God's grief against sin in a way that can actually be heard and understood. Right? The wild thing about Jonah, though, is that he didn't care. They didn't know him. They didn't know God. And they still listened. He still listened. So this is another lesson that we can get from this text, that God can soften the hardest of hearts. The greatest miracle in the book of Jonah isn't anything about the fish or the, the storm and all these things, but it's Nineveh's near immediate repentance after a single day's warning from this smelly foreign prophet that an unknown God will destroy them. From the least to the greatest, the entire nation repents. This is not how prophets are typically received when they bring bad news. If you remember any of the other instances that we read in Scripture. Uh, just a, two examples that came to mind. Uh, I think of Amos. There's a, an instance where a guy named Amaziah, who's a priest, comes to Amos and says, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary at the temple of the kingdom. He has assumed that this guy, this prophet Amos, is basically just trying to make money off of bad news. He's trying to stir up a panic and get people to act in a certain way. And Amos ends up responding to him and saying, I'm not getting paid for this. I'm like a shepherd from this place called Tekoa. This is not how I'm making my money. Um, this is not what I'm out to do. He's just delivering the message that God has given. In another place, uh, Jeremiah has a lot of different run-ins with people and, and generally bad responses to the message that he brings. But there's one in chapter 36. In the ninth month, the king was sitting on the, in the winter apartment with a, a fire burning and the fire pot in front of him. Um, let me actually, I didn't put the whole text on here, so let me open up to where we're at. Jeremiah 36. As Jehudi read uh, three or four columns, Jehoiakim would cut them off with a penknife and throw them in the fire, in the brazier, until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in there. And yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all of these words was alarmed, nor did they tear their garments. Even when Elphanan, Deliah, and Gerb... Yemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll. He would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, and Sariah, son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to arrest the secretary Baruch and the prophet Jeremiah. 
what the Lord did them. So here we have this king who is getting this, these messages of warning and judgment from Jeremiah. And rather than being concerned, just this kind of stone cold sitting by the fireplace. Nope. 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 And then responds with violence, right? These are far more typical reactions, either indifferent dismissal or hardened violence and rejection. Nineveh's response is different. They believed God. A fast was proclaimed, all of them, from the greatest to the least. They put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Total, total repentance. It's, it would be as if some random missionary just parachuted into an ISIS headquarters, started walking around yelling, Hey, 40 days and you're toast. And then every single ISIS member decided to renounce their violent ways and to turn to God. Unheard of, right? That doesn't, it's baffling. In any of those cases, whoever the prophet was would be certain that this was their dying mission, right? That's an extreme example, but so is Nineveh's repentance. And I think this tells us something about our own personal struggle of repentance, Right? Because there's two main reasons why we will generally respond that way to that kind of bad news or, or conviction or condemnation. One, I don't have a slide for that one. <laughs> one is that we don't want to stop what we're doing, right? If, we, if someone has brought a message to us saying what you're doing is wrong, it's against God, and you need to change, oftentimes we don't necessarily believe that it's wrong. We believe that we are somehow in the right, or we've justified it in some way, or we just plain don't want to stop. Another reason why we might get defensive is because we're afraid that if we're found out, that it might be the end for us, right? That people will look at us completely differently. There might be some sort of incredibly negative consequence that we just don't want to be found out. And so we hide it, keep it in secrecy. We deny, 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 right? But none of us, repentance shows us that no one is without hope. There's a reason why Jonah didn't like them. Like they, they are enemies of Israel. They have already threatened and, and performed violence uh, against other people. There's a reason he doesn't want them to experience God's mercy. And yet, they actually do repent. They actually do seem to want to turn around and have uh, some new relationship. God truly can soften these kinds of hearts. And the first step toward that hope is this belief, however small, that there may be some chance of mercy. That's what the king says. Maybe, maybe, maybe if we stop our violence, if we repent, maybe he will relent. He won't experience this. That's our third lesson, that God does not despise a contrite heart. Of course, we find that Nineveh's hope is not misplaced. God is, in fact, merciful. They go all out in their repentance, even calling for animals to join in on the time of fasting and humility, all for the slim chance that this unknown God might relent in compassion. And we're told that God saw their repentance and he relented from his wrath. And this is the least surprising bit of the text because God has always acted this way. God has always been the God of mercy for those who humble themselves and repentance. 
This is why King David could appeal to God's mercy, even after he committed adultery, uh, even after he had then um, uh, tried to hide it by staging the murder of Bathsheba's husband afterwards. And in Psalm 51, David is wrestling with his uh, remorse over what he has done. And he, he says at the end here, God, you do not delight in sacrifice or I bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, God, you will not despise. This is who David has experienced in his relationship with God. That when he messes up royally, that he can come to God humbly, acknowledging his error, and that God will give mercy. Well, what does it look like for us to repent? Nineveh gives us a model. We take ownership of our own sin. Nineveh may not have known all of the extent of their sin if they didn't uh, truly know God and God's character and didn't have the law. They didn't necessarily know all of God's standards, and yet they seem to have some indication that their violence was a part of it. The king said, maybe he will forgive us for our violence. Um, and he named that specifically. We take ownership of our own sin. And I do think it's important for us to not just speak generally about our sin, but as much as we know with clarity the things that we have done wrong, to name it, to admit it. I've recommended to people before as well, if there's something that's between you and another person, that when you're re- confessing and repenting, that you should do that with as many people at least who are involved with the situation. If you have hurt someone else, to acknowledge that before the other person. If it's a thing that's just between you and God, you can do it just between you and God. But there's power in naming it and naming it out loud as well. There's power in doing that. We must humble ourselves to pray, to seek the Lord's face and repent of all that is not of God, that's not of Jesus. That means that not only do we acknowledge that it was wrong, but that we make a plan for how we will live differently. Right? We may not even know the extent of our sin yet, but we can be willing to have it searched out. Say, Lord, would you search me and know me? Would you reveal if there's anything else that I need to do to get right? The truth is we find all sorts of ways to rationalize our sinful behaviors and attitudes, but we tend to apply a pretty black and white filter to other people's actions, right? But we need to flip it to call out the sin in our life ruthlessly, resting in the knowledge of God's grace and mercy, and extend the benefit of the doubt to others. Right? Sometimes, sometimes we're Jonah. Sometimes we need to communicate God's judgment and mercy with clarity and grace to those who need to hear it. More often, we are Nineveh, needing to reckon with our sin even if the messenger is less than tactful. But Nineveh's repentance, as dramatic as it was, didn't last. They later go back to the same old game. The last thing that we need to know is to make this a daily habit. Nineveh didn't do that. And it didn't turn out well for them in the end. Repentance is a daily habit. It has to be. Because we have such an enormous capacity to forget. It's crazy to me how good we are at forgetting, how good I am at forgetting 
God's goodness, that he can do things incredibly dramatic in my life to, to show me his goodness, his grace, and his mercy, miraculous things even. And then the very next day or a week or a month later, I will start to doubt that it even happened. Or, Scott, did God really do that? Did he really say that? We forget. We forget. Nineveh will forget. Jonah has already forgotten God's mercy to him in the depths of the sea. How soon do we forget? And yet, by the Father's grace, by the goodness of Jesus, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, when we live with him, we can find that we are a little more able day by day to remember to look a little more like Jesus, to grow, to maybe mess up in new and creative ways that we have to repent of afterwards. But we make progress. Look more like Jesus than the day before. So, may we respond. May our hearts be softened. May we repent. And may we remember. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, Kind Father, Jesus, our Savior, Holy Spirit, our friend and guide, we thank you. We thank you that in you, even bad news is good news. Because you always carry the hope of mercy, of restored relationship. We thank you that one day there will be a final end to evil. We thank you that you will make all things new. We thank you that you share your mercy and your grace with us. That we might experience correction now in your love, in your mercy, in your patience. And we pray, Lord, that we might hear your call to heed your words, to love and value your instruction. We pray that we might have the courage to respond, to say, Lord, we want to acknowledge you as Lord, to surrender control in our own lives so that we might look more like you, to have all things set to right within and without. And we pray this, Lord, saying, May your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.